If you have a Bible with you this morning, we're looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It's a very famous passage, the wedding of Cana. So hear the word of God. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had become, now had become wine and did not know where it had come from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would bring gladness where there was sorrow. I pray that you would bring a joy where there is sadness. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. And the first question I just ask you this morning as we enter, if you've been here, is do you remember the difference between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John? Remember, the Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Gospel of John is, well, it's the Gospel of John. The three Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of overlap and a lot of similarity, and John has some overlap with those three Gospels. Of course, they're all about Jesus, but it's quite different in a lot of ways. The primary difference is that the the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are primarily concerned with telling us about what Jesus said and what Jesus did, right? What he taught or what he said and what he did, where John is primarily concerned with showing us what Jesus has done and what that means. In other words, the synoptics want, want to show us what Jesus did, and John is primarily concerned with showing us what Jesus means, or what his actions means, or what his person means. And when it comes to miracles, that is especially pronounced. So in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you see a miracle, primarily the miracles in those three Gospels are all about sort of the incursion of the kingdom of God into this world. In other words, that the, that the kingdom of God is coming and it's taking over some place that Satan has taken over. It's reestablishing the reign of God or it's making things to be the way they're supposed to be, right? When Jesus heals somebody, it's the kingdom of God breaking in and, and essentially saying this is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be like. There's not supposed to be sickness, and this is how it is now, or when he drives out demons. In the Gospel of John, it's different than that, right? Whereas, whereas the synoptics are showing you what Jesus has done and how the kingdom of God has broken in, when John talks about miracles, it's almost always symbolic, or it's always in terms of a sign. In fact, John's whole Gospel is built around seven signs or seven miracles, and basically, um, when you think about those, John is concerned with what they mean. He's concerned when we look at these things with how we understand how they point 
to what Jesus either has done or will do in the future. So in John, the miracles are sort of they're signs in the sense that they point to something. They point to something greater than themselves. They point to the work of Jesus that is coming, the work of Jesus that is in process, all of those things. It's about meaning. Again, so you have what Jesus has done in the synoptics versus what Jesus means in the Gospel of John. And so as we come to today's passage, right, we've looked at all this, this sort of theology and all, you know, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and all of these things in chapter 1. Chapter 1 ends with Jesus sort of calling his first disciples. And then the very first thing that happens in the Gospel of John is the first miracle Jesus ever does. And it's this very famous miracle where he changes water to wine at this wedding in Cana. And so since we're talking about meaning in the Gospel of John, as we look at this uh, passage this morning, we're basically going to look at two things. We're going to look at what this passage, what this miracle means practically, and we're going to talk about what this miracle means Christologically. In other words, what does it say about Jesus? If it's a sign that points to something, it, is it pointing to something Jesus has done or will do? So with all of that said, let's look first uh, practically what does this mean Let me read the setting again. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So if you remember, one of the last people Jesus dialogued with was a man named Nathaniel. Nathaniel, we know, was from Cana. So we imagine somehow or another, uh, Jesus and his mother and the disciples, they're invited to this wedding. Also, Nazareth apparently was only three or four miles away from Cana, and you know, right, small world. And so, one way or the the other, Jesus, his mother, and the disciples—remember, they're all from Galilee—were invited to this wedding. They didn't just barge in, right? Some people say, "Oh, the reason Jesus had to change water into wine is because he and the disciples showed and drank everything, and it was like his fault anyway." He was invited. It was just, he was just, in most people's minds, he was just Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. And if you were wealthy or if you weren't wealthy, you invited everyone you knew to the wedding. It was one of the biggest events of the year in the ancient Near East. And in fact, the wedding procession would would take place the night of the wedding. The the bridegroom and his friends and his family, they would process at night with torches and go to the bride's house and they would, you know, say things. There would be certain liturgies and then she would come and they would process back to the bridegroom's house and then there would be a sort of ceremony and then bam, there would be a, a feast for seven days. It was glorious unless you ran out of food. It was, it was amazing unless you ran out of wine. In fact, there was such reciprocity back in, in this in the time of Jesus that if you went to a wedding or if your, bro, if your daughter was marrying someone and the bridegroom was responsible for the feast and the feast ran out of wine or it ran out of food, which happened, we know, um, you could be sued for that. Because it was an incredibly shameful event. It was an incredible, like when this couple has run out of wine at this wedding, which they had, and if Jesus wasn't there, they might have borne that shame literally for the rest of their lives. Every time people see them, they'd be like, whoo, remember their wedding? Ran out of wine? Who does that? Right? So they would have borne this shame. It was a very incredibly shameful thing. Now, practically speaking, what happens? Practically speaking, how does Jesus save the day? Well, Basically, the, you have the procession, you have this expectation. What happens is you have a practical solution. Notice this says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And he says, woman, 
what does this have to do with me? My hour's not yet come. His mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, from one perspective, you could almost read that. I, I've always read that as sort of a, like almost funny. Like he says, woman, well, how's this my problem? And she looks at the servants, do what he tells you. Like she doesn't even listen to him. Like she knows he's going to do what she says. She says, mom. So practically speaking, the only problem here is she just needs to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, fix this. He's like, what? And she says, just do what he says. She, and walks away. She knows he's going to do it. And he changes the water to wine. The, the day is saved, practically speaking. He, he is, he's not only saved this wedding, but apparently there's so much wine here that there were, no doubt would have been wine left over that it would have been a pretty expensive gift for this couple after. So the couple not only has had their wedding saved by Jesus, but they have also been blessed by Jesus with, with financial prosperity, and they have become sort of like famous almost because the master of ceremonies comes, and what does he say? By the way, in this context, the master of ceremonies would be sort of like the DJ, at least the DJ at my kids' weddings, right? The DJ is the one that says, okay, now, you know, the father-daughter dance is going to happen. That's who this guy would have been. So he's the guy with the mic, and he would have tasted the wine, and he tells the bride, the bridegroom doesn't know what happens. He doesn't even know they ran out of wine. And he goes and says, "Woo! people usually wait until everyone's drunk to bust out the good stuff, but you, you saved the best for last. And I, who knows what the bridegroom thought? Mm-hmm, I, yep. And that's it. Practically speaking, Jesus has saved the day. That life-changing to you? It's just a story, right? It's, it's a pra- so, the, so these people were gonna—they were gonna be living in shame for the rest of their life. Jesus changes water into wine. The wine is awesome, and now they're gonna be rich and famous for the rest of their lives. Praise the Lord. Practically speaking, if you only look at this this passage from a practical perspective or from a realistic perspective, it fits under the category of um, basically uh, Acts 10.38. Remember Acts 10, in in the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says Jesus went around doing good, blessing people. So Jesus went around doing good. He gets invited to this wedding. There's a major problem. He does good. Problem solved. Move on to the next thing. Now, if we stopped there, it would be a cool story, and we would say, wow, that was really nice of Jesus. But since we're looking at the Gospel of John, John wants us to see more than this in this story. He says, this is the first of Jesus' signs that he did, that something about this wedding and something about the solution that Jesus provides, something even about the way he interacts with Mary is a sign of something else. So if we, we, we look at it practically, it's, it's one thing. If we look at it Christologically, it becomes something else altogether. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 3 again. It says, when the wine ran out, now we're looking at things Christologically now. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, no doubt, in verse 3, Mary is playing the mom card, right? So think about this. Most people believe that by this time, Joseph was dead, that that her husband is deceased. We never hear of him again after, I think, Luke chapter 2 or 3. And Jesus was the oldest son, so Jesus would have fulfilled the sort of the man of the house role. And so maybe for 30 years, when Mary has a problem like this, she goes to the oldest son and says, hey, oldest son, man of the house, you need to do something about this. 
And that's implicit. She doesn't come out and say, can you do something or you should do something. She just, she's working. She apparently knows the family and she just says they have no wine. And implicit in that is you need to do something about it. She plays the mom card, no question. Now what's interesting um, is that Jesus in verse 4, notice he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now when Jesus says to her, woman, it's interesting because it's not a rebuke. He's not, he's not saying, woman. He's using a very generic neutral term that is, is it's, it's neither good or bad, but it's certainly not something that a loving son would call his mother. Right? Like I, I'm, today is my mother's birthday. I'm going to call her today and I'm going to say, woman, happy birthday. No, I'll say, mom, I love you. Happy birthday. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Mom? Mother? He says, Woman. What is he doing? He's, he's starting to put distance between him and, his, him, him and her. He's basically starting to tell her, Mom, or Woman, the mom card doesn't work anymore. Things are changing now. In fact, the next thing he says when he says, What does this have to do with me? It's actually in Greek. It's a very convoluted uh, word structure that basically says, what is it you? What is it me? And it's used always to put distance between two people. And so, and figuratively speaking, Jesus is saying, woman, my hour has not yet come. And when Jesus talks about hour in the book, Gospel of John especially, he's talking about the cross. My time of crucifixion and resurrection and exaltation has not yet come, but my ministry has started. And from now on, from now on, now that my ministry has started, your interaction with me must no longer be mother-son, but, but disciple and Savior. That when Mary says, that when Jesus says, woman, what is this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He is distancing himself and transitioning in her mind, in her life, from this familial inside track to now, you, just like everyone else, need to believe in me. I mean, imagine this scenario. Mary dies. She goes to heaven. And Jesus says, why should I let you in? And Mary replies, you're kidding, right? Man, I carried you for nine months. And after that, I had to run with you into Egypt. And then who wiped your butt? And then who cooked your food? And then who cleaned the house? And who did all these things for you? I've been doing that for 30 years. Wrong answer. Even you, Mary. Even you who bore the Lord Jesus. Even you who changed his diapers. Even you who fed him. Even you who escaped to Egypt with him. Even you who raised him. Even you who had all the heartache. You do not get in without trusting him like everyone else. Mary, do you want to try that again? Mary, why should I let you in? Because that day at that wedding, I realized you were no longer my little boy. That day I had, to, I had to come to grips with the fact that you were no longer my little boy, but you were in fact my Messiah. That you were in fact my Lord. And do you remember right after that, Jesus, I showed you I believed that because I told the servants, do what he tells you. In, in, in other words, you can either look at Mary saying, do what he tells you, like she just is like bossing Jesus around, or you can look at Mary and say, she got it. 
She understood when Jesus said, woman, what is this to me? My hour has not yet come. And when she looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you, that actually is, is a statement of faith now. That she, that she doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. Jesus may do nothing, but Mary trusts that whatever he's going to do is the right thing. Whatever he's going to do is the thing that needs to be done. She says, do what he tells you, and she now can relax and enjoy the rest of the wedding. Because whether it goes good or bad, whether there's wine or no wine, Jesus, Lord, is in charge of everything. Mary has trusted Jesus. How about you and me? If you were to stand before Jesus, right? He says, why should I let you in? What would you say? Would you say, Jesus, you know all these things I've done for you? You know, I've been a good person. You know, all this ministry I've done. You know, I was on the mission field. I did short-term missions. I did this. I did that. I was one of the facility maintenance people. I was a deacon. I was an elder. Come on, man. Wrong answer. Want to try that again? Jesus, I got nothing. <laughs> Jesus, I think you should let me in because of your work on my behalf. You said that anyone who calls upon you will be saved from their sins, and I've done that, and that's what my claim is. Come on in. You see, the, the gospel is all about grace, and it's not about works. It's all about what Jesus has done, not what we have done. We see that even in this parable. It gets better. Notice what he says. Um, in verse 6 it says now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 to 30 gallons Jesus said to the servants fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim and he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master so they took it and then we know the master of the feast tasted it said you've saved the best for last now what's interesting is what Jesus chose to use to perform this miracle so there's, there were these six stone water jars, and they would have been there for ritual purity. In other, in other words, as guests would have come into the wedding, servants would have poured water over their hands to pretend like they were making them clean. Think about the, the whole, it's like the whole idea of ritual purity, not actual purity. It's like, it's like someone telling you that masks work when they actually don't. Or someone telling you that they don't work when they actually do, right? It's just you're like going through the theater and you're not sure what's going on. But like, I'll just go through the theater and get my hands washed and go inside and act like everything's okay. That's what those jars were for. I can't imagine how many people were saying, thank the Lord that you're washing my hands right now. I feel like my conscience is clean, my shame is gone, and my guilt has been taken care of. Now let's go to the party. They're just there for people to go through the motions. They're just there for people to, to pretend. But they were, they were also there according to the law. Right? The law shows us like, hey, man, you're, you're unclean, so you need to be pure. At least go through the motions, and they would do it. Jesus chooses those, those jars. And I've, I've always wondered, why did he choose those jars instead of the, the other, like, if they ran out of wine, that means they had wine before. Why didn't he just use, tell them to fill the old wine jugs up with water and he would fill the old wine jugs up with wine? Or the old wine skins up with wine? Why, did, why didn't he use what they already had? Instead, he actually went out of his way to use the things that were set aside for ritual purity. He says, take those things and fill them up with water. to the All the way up. And it doesn't even describe how he did it it just says that it happened when they when they took the wine out when they drew some out it was wine 
So what is going on here? That basically Jesus is taking these things that represent the law and he is transforming them into something that represents something else. Right? He is, he is taking, if we will, the law, the water of law and changing it into the wine of the gospel. He is, he is taking what the law does. What does the law do? The law, the, the law can't save you. The law can't do anything for you. The law can, can show you where you fail. And the law can show you the hoops you need to jump. But that's about it. What does the wine do? When you read through the Bible, what, is, what does wine do? Now, if you're a teetotaler, I'm sorry. Wine makes the heart glad. Right? I mean, I, I, this is a side road. I'm really not going to go down. But you know, a lot of people say, oh, that really wasn't wine. That was just grape juice. They didn't drink in the Old Testament. God doesn't like that. I'm not advocating drinking. But I, if we're going to be honest about what the Bible says, the, the master ceremonies basically says people usually get drunk by this time that it was wine. And I tell you what, grape juice doesn't make my heart glad. Wine does. And when you look through the, whole, the, the Old Testament and New Testament, wine not only makes the heart glad, but wine is representative of all the gladness God will bring. That, that in the eschatological kingdom, at the end of time, that wine will flow freely. And it's a symbol and it's a sign of what God is doing. That He, he is replacing uh, the, the terror of the law with the joy of the gospel. All of the things that this ritualistic thing pointed to is your need. Jesus says, I will provide. All of the things that the law demands of you, I will meet. And not only will I meet them, you see, it isn't just math, right? As Christians, especially Presbyterians, we tend to look at the the Bible and we tend to read it with these theological lens and it's just all math, right? Proposition number one, I'm a sinner. Proposition number two, Jesus died for sins. Proposition number three, I trust Jesus. Proposition number four, I'm good to go. And then I'll just go live my life the way I should have lived. I'm a miserable a lot of times, I'm depressed a lot of times, I don't have joy all the time, but I got my math right, so I'm good to go. You know what, you need to have your math right, but if you really understand the math, you also begin to hear it as music. It becomes joyful to you. And if the gospel's not joyful to you, Jonathan Edwards would say, if it's not affecting your heart, maybe you haven't really been changed by it. Maybe you need to revisit it. Jesus here changes this, this water into wine, And it's not just math. He wants us to understand that the gospel is also music. And there is coming a time in the the future when all will be like this. That this wedding that almost failed will have a bridegroom who not only will not fail, but a bridegroom who will actually bring permanent joy and gladness. Let me read to you what he says in Isaiah, what God says in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, on this mountain, he's talking about Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take, take, take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. You see, I think this wine, the changing of water into wine, in John's mind, is a sign of what Jesus is doing and what he is taking and doing in the future with us, which is preparing us to be, to be bride, brides and to, to attend this great wedding feast. But not only that, it's that, that 
he is saving the best for last. Remember, let me read that to you. It says in verse uh, 9, when the, the, feast tasted the, the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine, did not know where it had come from, he said to them, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, the, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. In other words, whatever we have now and whatever we are experiencing now cannot compare to what Jesus is preparing for us in the future. That what we, we often talk about in, in, the, in the context of troubles, right? And the Apostle Paul says that you know, our present sufferings cannot be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. But I think there's more to it than that. It's our present glories cannot be compared to the glories that will be revealed to us. Our present successes cannot be compared to the successes that will be revealed to us. Our present happiness and our present joy cannot be compared to the great happiness and great joy that will be revealed in the future the best is yet to come now the good news of the gospel is we can begin to experience that now that we don't have to just go through the motions we can actually have joy and gladness now and the question is do you believe that notice verse 11 it says this the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him the question, of course, for us is, do we believe seeing what Jesus has done? You know, Judy and I watched a movie the other night uh, called Coda. It's on Apple TV, if you have Apple TV. If you don't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, but Coda, it, and, it, and I'll be honest with you, I, I, there were times in the movie I laughed so hard, I, I, would be, I was crying and I had to pause it just because I had to catch my breath. And there were other times I cried so hard I had to pause it. Because I had to catch my breath. It's basically, CODA stands for Child of Deaf Adults. And it's about a girl who's a, who's a great singer, and her parents, her whole family, are completely deaf. And there was one scene in the movie that, that wrecked me. Because cause I'm, I'm, I'm hearing impaired. I'm not as bad as, I'm not stone deaf like they were, but I understand what they felt like. The, the, her parents and her brother were at her, a concert that she was doing, and everyone started to stand up and clap and, and raise their hands and do all these things. And the parents, at some point, they, they showed things from the parents' perspective, and it was completely quiet. It was eerie. And they're looking around, and everyone is clapping. And finally, they're like, well, they look at each other, and, and they start just going through the motions. But the thing is, they're at it. They, don't, they can't hear the beat. They, they look funny. They look silly. But the thing is, they're just going through the motions. They don't have any joy. They don't have anything. They're just going through the motions, trying to be acceptable, trying to fit in with everyone else. And honestly, that's what most of us do most days of our life. We go through the motions. We hope people don't notice how awkward we are. We hope people don't notice that we don't really know what's going on or we're not as smart as they, you know, whatever it is. The glory of the gospel is this, is you don't have to go through the motions anymore. When you trust Jesus, when you begin to trust him and when you begin to hear his voice, when you, when you begin to understand what he's done, you begin to actually hear the music whether you're deaf or not, right? You hear the music in your heart, and then you, you can actually live in that joy and that grace. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we uh, look at this passage, we look at the rest of the Gospel of John, that we would become uh, more in tune with the music of the Gospel, more in tune with what uh, Jesus has done and what he is doing and what he will do 
in our lives. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.